Digital Marketing Radio episode 266. How to host an interview podcast like a pro. Digital Marketing Radio with David Bain. Hi, I'm David Bain and this is Digital Marketing Radio, the place where today's modern marketing masters keep you up to date with the latest tools, tactics and trends of everything that helps to accelerate your digital marketing success. Now, Content is at the heart of modern marketing mastership, and it's very hard to continuously create great content without the help of others. And if you're able to persuade some of the leaders in your industry that it's worthwhile granting you some of their time, you'd better make sure that you make the most of it. You'd better make sure that you know how to interview. That's what we're going to be talking about on episode 266 of Digital Marketing Radio with a man who created the entire category of entrepreneur interview podcasts. Since 2008, he's interviewed 2,144 founders of key technology startups. He's the founder of Mixergy and the author of the soon-to-be-published Stop Asking Questions, How to Lead High-Impact Interviews and Learn Anything from Anyone. Welcome to DMR, Andrew Warner. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks, Andrew. Uh, you can find Andrew over at Mixergy.com. So, Andrew, what's your podcasting longevity secret? Ooh, yeah. You know what? 14 years. It's not, you know what? When you say years, it sounds like, okay, no big deal. It's the number of freaking countries that I've done this in. I mean, I remember starting out in Santa Monica and then saying, my wife wants us to move to Argentina. I don't even know how the internet's going to be in Argentina. What's the lag going to be like? We'll figure it out. And then going into Argentina with within days of landing, I had an interview scheduled and I had to find space to record because our house was not ready to record in. And I'm walking all over town with Olivia. We're exploring the city, looking at office space, locking in office space. And then come Monday, I think it was a Monday, time to record. Boom, I'm in my space, ready to record with a brand new guest. And it's been years of situations like that. I mean, frankly, David, just to come in and record with you, because we're, we happen to be in Austin and we moved from one Airbnb to another uh, this weekend. I said, I need a space. Our, our Airbnb does not have enough space for me to record. I got to find a place. And I rushed with my bike. I showed you how sweaty I was because Austin <laughs> is so hot. I bought a bike because I was tired of, of uh, renting scooters. Ubers take forever. So I bought a bike this weekend. I rented office space on my phone last night and I said, I'm going to record with David. So the question then is, how do you do it? Because you always have an appointment. If it's on us, we're never going to get anything done. The problem with the American self-help system is it's all self-help. How do I get myself to produce more? How do I get myself to have longevity? How do I get to sit down and write? It's all about I, I, I. How do I do it? And if it's just all you, at some point you're going to fail. At some point you're not going to be able to do it. At some point you're not going to have the energy or the caring to follow through. The beauty of... Working with other people, the way I have when I've done interviews is there's always someone else there holding you accountable, someone else there being considered, someone else there with a setup, with information. So if I didn't have you here and I just was a writer, for example, or frankly, an online marketer, and I had to find a quiet space to record, I might have gotten lazy, quiet space to work. I might have just said, you know what, I'll sit in the house and do it. And then my wife would have been working from home and I would have had all the distractions from home and the Airbnb wouldn't have been good. And I go, you know what, it's a Tuesday. Who cares? I'll skip it. It was a short week. Yesterday was a holiday. Baba Wouldn't get it done. But because I know I'm talking to David today, because I know that I've got an appointment with you, I show up. Same thing. Over 2,000 interviews. Every one of them is somebody who I think in some ways benefited from me because they've gotten me to interview them, bring out their ideas, get them an audience. But more importantly, I benefited from them because they held me accountable. I had to show up at the time. I had to have myself prepared. And then you don't just show up physically. You show up mentally. You show up where you're trying to absorb as much information and learn as much as possible. And that's the beauty of interviewing. Everyone else who's an online creator, I feel, is on their own. They have to do it. They have to get something done. As an interviewer, there's somebody else who's working with me. There's somebody else who, when I interview, says, Andrew, show up at this time. Andrew, here's who I am. I expect you to do a little bit of homework on me. And since you've done the hour, Andrew, I'd like to see what happens as a result of it. And all that holds me accountable and keeps me going. That's the secret to accountability and longevity. Work Love with it. other people who hold That's you That's the exact same way that I hold myself accountable, actually. I, I schedule interviews with other people and then I kind of have to do it. I'm committed to doing it. It scares me a little bit to either produce a show just by yep. myself or 
a, a show on using seasons because some people say, oh, that's the end of season one. We'll come back to you at some point with season two. That scares me because there's no commitment to right. dating. Right, me too. So, me too, me too. One other question in relation to keeping on going is how do you actually stay refreshed and stop yourself from getting jaded? I try to ask questions that really matter to me. What am I going through? What am I dealing with? So uh, last week, I had a situation where we're in Austin. My wife's not sure if she wants to move to Austin, go back to San Francisco. She's feeling frustrated. I'm feeling just energetic and optimistic about it. And I and I don't know why, because we haven't found a house here. We don't know where we live if we go back to California. There's no reason for me to feel at all optimistic, but I'm feeling optimistic. And as I do it, Olivia, who's very sensible, thinks, Andrew, you're just being, you're, you're not being reasonable. You're not paying attention. You're not thinking about what's really going on in the world. And I thought about that when I went into my interview last week with this entrepreneur, Jerry, who's owned and worked in uh, the parking space business for years. Guy's done an Ironman marathon. He's climbed four of the top peaks in the world. And he, and he says to me, Andrew, the reason I could do it is because whenever I go with a friend to climb a mountain and they see how tough it is, after all the preparation, they say something went wrong here. We have diarrhea. We have to get off the mountain. Something went wrong. Our equipment failed. We have to get off the mountain. And he says, I see it. And I think this is just part of what I sign up for. This is going to be great because at the other end of this diarrhea, we're going to end up feeling lighter <laughs> and we'll have less to carry in our bodies and we're going to get to the top. And he says his friends leave, but he stays. And so I asked him a question about this. How do you, do you ever have somebody who feels, who feels like you're not reasonable, like you're living in some kind of fairyland and you're going to cause trouble for them because you're not thinking rationally. And we had a really clear conversation where he talked about how it happens often enough that people believe it. It happens often enough that he will, in crisis, find the opportunity that he has trained himself to do it. And I thought, the way I'm, way I'm holding myself it's reasonable. We're going to figure out where we want to live. We're going to, that's not even one of the biggest problems of our lives. This is going to end up with something much better coming out of it. And so, for example, today, I've had a great office in San Francisco. Everything recorded well. I love that I was able to come in here and out of nowhere find a spot that feels comfortable, feels mm. refreshing. And it's because I shifted out of the place that was comfortable into a place that was causing not a major crisis, but a small little issue for me over the weekend, and then I solved it. And so that's what I do. Whenever there's something on my mind, I seek to a person who I want to have a conversation with who has not just overcome it, but done something amazing because of it. And that's the secret. Keep guiding the conversations towards something useful. I see you've got the same microphone, or appears to be the same microphone that you used to have, and also boom arm. Is that something that you had to take with you, or did it happen to be available to you in the, uh, the place that you've actually reserved? I was going to throw out this boom arm and go light, and I left it in our house that we left in San Francisco, and my wife says to me, um, you can't just leave it here. I said, yeah, we can We can just throw it away. Said, no, you can't. I threw it in the back of the car, and I didn't have the heart to throw it out on my drive from San Francisco to Austin, and I'm so glad I didn't. It really does help. It lets me have the ability to lean back. It lets me have a microphone that sounds good. I, I, I'm a strong proponent of boom arms. I think a lot of people look for the best possible mic, and they spend money on mics and cameras. A boom arm will cost you about 100 bucks. Huge difference. It means you have more desk space. It means when you tap the desk, nobody can hear it. Let's do it. I'm going to hit the desk right now. Yeah. You can hear the desk, but the mic isn't making a sound. Absolutely, That's huge. And I'm hitting the desk pretty hard. Definitely. Definitely. You've learned, I'm sure, so much over the last 12, 13, what is it, 13 and a half years, 14 years almost. Um, I'm sure it's 13. hard or been hard for you to distill everything you've learned into a single book. So you decided on interviewing skills. Is that the most important skill that you happen to have developed because of podcasting, do you think? I think so. I think what I've discovered is that I can have conversations with people beyond interviews in a way that is extraordinary and in interviews even better because I've done this not just for 14 years. I'm kind of an obsessive person. So when I finish an interview, I'll go through the transcript and I'll look and see what did I do that got that person to feel comfortable? What is it that that person did that made me realize that there was more to dig in and find out about how they broke up with their wife and why that set them off on a new journey. And like, how do I get that? When a stranger just pops up on my on my screen and doesn't often want to do the interview, but just needs it for attention, 
what is it that I do to make them relax? And so I just go through all these transcripts year after year. And when I find something that works, I name it and I put it in a Google Doc. When I find something that makes sense, I, I add it to a doc with not just a name, but I also clip out the section of the interview where that happened so that I have an example of it. And after years, I didn't do this for 14 years. I did this for just under a decade. But after doing that for that long, I've come up with techniques that help me have decent, meaningful conversations with people. So you've kindly shared a pre-publication copy of the book with me. And I can see the book is actually split into four key sections. So firstly, the tools of deep conversations. Secondly, preparing for interviews landing great guests, and then the business of interviewing. So for this conversation, I'd like yeah. to focus on one tip for each section. So from the first okay. section, um, the tools of deep conversations, you say that you can block aggressive selling uh, by before the interview starts asking what's a win <laughs> for you. And then you, you asked that um, for me right at the beginning of this interview before we started recording. So why is that so yeah. important for you and how does it work? You wanted to know what, it was, what a win for me was. If you hadn't done that, I would have thought the whole conversation is does David know that I've got this book? Can I squeeze the book into this conversation? Can I make sure that I let him know that the audience knows? Because as I'm talking to you, Ben from my publisher, uh, Damn Gravity, is texting me. I haven't even read his message, but I've seen his name. And I could feel him saying, we're putting in all this effort. I need you to put your, your work in and make sure that you get the word out about the book. And if you hadn't said what's a win for you and given me a chance to say, I'd love if we can just mention the book, I wouldn't trust that the book would come out and I would push it awkwardly, endlessly. Once you, once you ask me, what is it that your goal is? I was able to relax and be here and answer your questions, even if they don't directly lead to my end goal and know that at the end, I'm going to get what I wanted because you cared enough to, to ask about it. I think we need to do that in interviews. I think we need to do that in private conversations. If somebody gets on a call with you, I think it helps to say, what's a win for you in this conversation? What's, what's your ideal goal before we start? So that you could get to that and know where you're going and they could feel reassured and that you're working towards it together. I love that. And I think that um, I should use it um, more predictably at the beginning of each conversation that I have. I think the biggest challenges that I have is when I reach out to someone to interview them for my podcast, then usually people aren't sales orientated in terms of um, selling what they do. But when someone reaches out to me to be on the show, then they're much more sales orientated. So they're much more likely to be selling something, a book or, 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 or something else. And that, that might be a good way to manage that. Do, do you, I'm sure you get many people that reach out to you to want to be on Mixergy. Do you normally not um, take people that reach out to you? Or, or what's your process for dealing with people that like that to, to ensure that they don't become too salesy? I do get people who reach out to us and the level of guests that reaches out to us is extraordinary and I'm I'm happy to say yes to them and we do also have to say no to most of them. So we, we do a lot of screening, but because of the reputation over the years, we get phenomenal guests who reach out to Beyond. Now, once they reach out to Beyond, they clearly have a goal. They're working on something, launching a book, launching a, a new site, launching a new fund, whatever it is. Um, actually the number one reason David is it's M and a or biz dev. What they're trying to do is get the word out before they raise money. What they're trying to do is raise the, get the word out before they consider an acquisition offer or making acquisitions anyway. So if I just ask them, what's a win for you, they know that I'm going to cover it and they could re relax and let it happen. And that's, that's the best I can, I can do with them. I haven't had anyone push, but if they continue to push and push and push, I'm happy to say we're being a little too aggressive here. I think the audience is going to feel like they don't know you and instead they're getting a sales call from you. If we just let them hear you, they're going to care about you and then they're going to care about what you have to offer. Let's talk back about what did you do when you started that first company because I thought it was extraordinary and then we move into that. But I, I'm happy to say what it is and comfortable letting them know I don't want, I don't want to be pushed. Okay, and um, you also call it, I think, is it the Mixergy Circle where... People listen and they end up yeah. doing what they learn and they come on and they become a guest after that. Yeah. That was my vision in the beginning that people would be listening to the interviews and then creating companies and coming back on to talk about them. And I said it with this idea that is anyone even listening to the podcast? I mean, I started in what, 2016? There wasn't, excuse me, 2006, not 2016, yeah. 2006. The iPhone did not 
did the iPhone even come out or maybe it came out the next year? Basically, I started before the iPhone had a podcast app on it, before people had the ability to access it, unless they were super geeks. And so people would hit play on a web browser and not know how to find their spot again, or they would have to know how to download and then put it onto their podcast app or their crazy old phone, but they did it. And so for me at the time, with a handful of people who did it, to also say, not only are you going to figure this out, but also I want you to build a company and come back on here and pay it forward by doing an interview and telling somebody else was almost dreaming and wishful thinking. Mm. But I put it out there because I wanted everyone to know the spirit. This is not a show that you're, I don't even consider it a show. I'm not an entertaining person. This is, this is us almost learning together, almost struggling together to figure it out and then coming back and talking about it. And if I put that out there enough, people would come back and do it. And sure enough, they did. I started my first podcast in 2006 as well, actually, but I haven't been as consistent as you. I haven't done the same show for that number of years. I've probably done about six or 700 episodes in total. So maybe about a third of yours or so, but um, I, I, I wish I had been more That's consistent. solid, man. Yeah, it's, it's decent. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Why um, do you fun- think you weren't consistent? Oh, different um things come along in life. I think the way I viewed podcasting back in 2006 was just a small part of an overall digital marketing strategy or or, or channel or opportunity. Mm -hmm. I didn't think that it was possible just to focus on audio as a medium. I I thought it had to be a very small part of the overall mix. I get that. I think that makes sense. And for a long time, I felt like maybe I was making a mistake by continuing for a very long time. Like maybe I should have moved on to something else, um, but I, I just couldn't get myself to do it. By the way, David, I, I travel now with this small light that I bring with me. I'm mm-hmm. so glad I do. I have my iPad right here. I'm trying to switch to an app that gives me control of that screen, and look at how it darkens me to do that. Like, Look at that. I'm going to try to jump in. Let's see if I could do it. Mm. Look, it darkens his face. I know that I care a little too much about this, but I've really been enjoying how how I get different looks whenever I'm in a different office, like different aesthetic uh, mm. uh, webcam experience. I've been loving it. I love Absolutely. your design. I love how you've got that old microphone. I love the the colors behind you. I've really been geeking out on on the design of, uh, of podcasts and little things that go into it. It doesn't have to be a huge rig. Yeah, I've got into lighting yeah. a lot more recently. You, you have to have a key light, which is about... 30 degrees off center, and that's where the majority of your light comes in. But I've also got a filler light, which is the same angle from the opposite side, not as strong, but it just takes away some of the shadow mm-hmm. there as well. And then I've I've got a, a light, just just subtle light over the back of my head as well, just to add a little bit more 3D, and then the, the, the backing lights as you're talking about there as well. So yeah, a lot going on. I've studied a bit of lighting recently as well, and sometimes I'm it a helps. little bit too, yeah, I'm a little bit too much of a perfectionist sometimes as well. Sometimes you have to know when to just do something and something's never going to be perfect and (laughs) when to try and get it right. I I just wanted to give you a little bit of um, um, feedback in terms of where I heard of Mixergy. So it was about 2012 and I interviewed Uh a a chap called Liam Martin from Time Doctor. I know, of course. Yeah, exactly. So he'd been on Mixergy. And um, so I interviewed him for a podcast and he said to me, you know, I asked him maybe what podcast he listened to. And he said, Mixergy. I said, Mixer, Mixer what? <laughs> Never heard of Mixergy, I'm afraid, at the time. But um, I've, I've been a, a regular listener since. So um, he's, he's, he's the chap that's Thanks. responsible for a, a small percentage of your promotion. Yeah, he's been great. I've known him over the years. Um, I got to meet him at his conference um, in Bali, which was such a great conference. Um, I think that's the thing about podcasting that gets me down is that it's not a huge audience. Like a small YouTuber will have a bigger audience than a large podcaster. And so for a while there, it felt like it wasn't worth putting effort into a podcast. And I know it doesn't have to be either or, but Mm. if I'm thinking about the effort involved in doing a podcast versus YouTube, it felt like it wasn't worth it. The advantage that a podcast has is the sense of intimacy, like you are in somebody's head. Mm. And when I listen to a podcaster, it feels like, I don't know, like they are... They're part of my thought process. They are part of my daily life in a way that a YouTuber isn't, in a way that an Instagrammer isn't. It's hard to explain. And and that is a huge, huge uh, 
benefit of the experience. Definitely, definitely. It's a different type of medium. I am trying to publish episodes now on YouTube as well, but I've never had as much success publishing regular episodes on YouTube. In in the past, uh, five to ten years ago, I've had quite a lot of success with publishing individual long talks of me um, doing seminars on YouTube. So I've had number one rankings on YouTube for phrases like digital marketing and uh, videos with 100,000, 200,000 views. But I've never had that consistency on YouTube. I've never had those regular subscribers on there. So do you, do you, have you tried to focus on YouTube at the same time or never really majored on the on the channel? I did in the beginning and I didn't feel like it was my best work. I didn't feel like I had a passion for it. I'm not, and until recently, I'm not a really big YouTube fan. I listen to podcasts. I don't have the energy to sit down and pay attention to something like that. I'm much more active. So I want to go for a run. And sure, I'll listen to a podcast and have for years. I want to go for a bike ride. I want to, I want to move. I am not the sit still and watch, with one exception. Before going to bed, I will watch um, chess videos uh, and I could never believe that I would like to watch people playing chess, but it helps me with my game. It's relaxing. I'll watch that. And then when I fall asleep, I listen to history YouTube shows. But beyond that, I'm not even watching them. Just stories help me fall asleep with a podcast in my ear. There's something about there's something about the conversation. There's something about the the experience of a podcast that draws me in and I'm sticking with what I feel passionate about. So you were live streaming on Facebook for a while. How did that work out for you? I I was even live streaming on Twitch before it was Twitch. I thought that there was an advantage to it. My challenge with that was the same thing that Seth Godin said when um, I asked him why he didn't have comments at a time when everyone had comments on their blogs. He said that he can't stop paying attention. You can't stop paying attention to the comments. And so he's guided by them, whether it's directly or indirectly. If you listen to the interviews that I did with a live audience, you can see I'm playing up to the audience in a way that is more about up to the minute happiness, up to the minute, make them love me up to the minute, make sure that they're interested enough to stay. I don't, I don't love that. I want the intimacy of a deep conversation. I want to get deep in with somebody. I want, and again, this goes everywhere. If I'm together with a father at a playground while we're watching our kids, I don't want to have a BS conversation about how school is going and about um, playgrounds and how tough it is to be a dad. Oh, screw that. Yes, it's all tough and whatever, blah, blah, blah. I want to know more detail. I want to know when they're being dicks. Can I say that? I want to know when they're being jerks. Sorry about that. When they're being jerks uh, to their wives and how they're dealing with it. I want to know about how they feel stressed. I want to know whether they feel like they want to be with other women. I want to know about whether they feel confined by being in the... Uh, in there. I want to know what little life hacks they have for working that maybe fit me. I want that deep, deep conversation. And I didn't find that I was able to get that when I was doing a live stream. It made me want to entertain the audience like a dancing monkey. So the next section of your book is preparing for interviews. Um, I'd like to ask you about pre-interviews. So why are pre-interviews so important to you? And am I making a big mistake by not doing a pre-interview? My issue is that I would, at the end of an interview, have a guest go, you know, that was good. By the way, I, I meant to tell you about that time that I scammed somebody out of money and I felt guilty about it, And but it started the business. I go, dude, why didn't you say that within the interview? And of course they didn't say it because they weren't thinking about it at the time, because they're answering my question instead of being a little bit more creative with what, they're, what they thought about. Because maybe at first they weren't sure if they wanted to reveal it, but, but then once they told me, they realized, you know what, that's an okay thing to say. And I would have that happen often, and I realized, you know what, I need a way to get these ideas before the interview happens. And so I remember pulling into a jack-in-the-box and doing my first pre-interview on a piece of paper that I happen to have in my car, right, calling up a guest and saying, I need to talk to you because you're going to be online tomorrow with me and this is going to live forever. And when he called me, I happened to be driving and I remember pulling into the parking lot of a jack-in-the-box, asking him questions, writing down quick answers, realizing where he's interesting, realizing where he's boring, and being comfortable enough to cut the person off, to say, where'd you get the idea? And then when he goes into blah, 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 of like the whole thing that that he's prepared, the origin story that his PR people prepared, I remember cutting him off and go, actually, all right, let's save that. But what I want to know is, why did you? And then I ask another question. And then when it's good, I go, okay, let's cut it off so it sounds fresh in the interview. And in that pre-interview conversation, I was able to identify the stories that mattered. I was able to cut somebody off because either we want to save it to 
it so it's fresh or because I want to guide him towards something that's more interesting, but we don't have to let it go on. And that helped a lot. And so I think that we all need coaches. I think we all need a little bit of help to get out our best ideas. And that's partially what a pre-interview is about. And so we do that. The other part is they test to see, can I say this? Do I feel comfortable saying it? I, and I do think it absolutely helps. It doesn't have to be a formal pre-interview, but I think you asked me a few of the questions that are coming up for, for later on in this podcast, and I didn't realize you emailed them to me or sent them to me somehow, mm. and so I didn't prepare answers. And then you gave them to me, and I tried to come up with answers quickly, but I couldn't really, and I thought, all right, I'll just wing it when we go on. And I think if you would have spent some time coaching me on it and saying, all right, Andrew, I'm going to ask you about who's an up-and-coming uh, marketer. Well, have you had anyone talk to you? What type of things do you like? If you coach me a little bit in a forceful, quick way, I think I would have come up with a great answer. Instead, I have an answer I feel okay about. But I think we all need help to come up with that greatness. Yeah, I mean, obviously I send the interview questions um, for the second section out to guests beforehand. The, the first section, I like to have more of a, an open conversation, but I have a few notes for myself, certainly. But if it goes in a different direction, yep. that's 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 great as well. But for the second section, it's more structured. So I think it makes sense to send the questions out to guests beforehand. X percentage, maybe but 20% people of people. Do people do the homework? 80% of people they do. They don't do the yeah. homework. 80%, mo- most people do, yeah. For okay. me. All right. I find that people don't don't do the homework enough. And I find that them doing the homework maybe is not enough. But it doesn't it's it doesn't matter if they're if you're prepping them, if you're prepping yourself, that's that's the win. It doesn't have to be my preparation. It doesn't have to be the best preparation. What I worry about is I don't want my technique to be a limiting factor for anybody else who wants to have a conversation. I don't want anyone to say, Andrew has a great mic, I'm not gonna do it until I have a good mic. It's not about the the mic. I don't want anyone to say, Andrew does all this preparation until I do a pre-interview, it's not gonna be worth it, why do I have it online, or why compete in a world where Andrew's doing, I don't want that, it's not the pre-interview, it's a conversation with genuine curiosity. I also don't want myself to be held up to that because then it becomes a prison sentence for me. If every interview that I do has to be my best interview, meaning I have to do all the prep, and I have to do everything exactly right, I become a a prisoner of a book that I wrote and a technique that I discovered before. I don't want that. At the end of the book, I specifically freed my audience and myself of all those restraints. And I said, this is not a book of of things you have to do. It's a book of tools. It's just, here it is. Use the tools that you want. I have a toolbox at home. If there's a tool that I need in order to unscrew a doorknob, I'm going to use it. But you know what? If none of the screwdrivers do it and I could do it with my fingernail, I would do it with my fingernail. Just do whatever it takes in order to get the thing done. And for me, the thing that we're trying to get done is we are, and this is this is the thing that's that's holy for me. This is the thing that's really important. We're here to learn from the other person. We are here to extract some knowledge that we couldn't get anywhere else. There are other people who are going to teach you how to do these types of interviews where you get someone to admit something, where you change politics forever by showing that that person that you interviewed was really a hoax all along or a charlatan. That's not me. And so that... I feel solid about. We are not here to try to trap someone. Every trap that we've seen in interviews seems to work, but it doesn't really. No one's politics are changing anymore because of it. What we could do is we could really affect change in our own lives by saying there's something I'm wrestling with. I want that direct answer from someone who's done it. And guess what? If you're going through it, there's someone else who's doing it. And if you do that, screw the rest. Pre-interview doesn't matter. Good mic doesn't matter. Good anything. Good manners don't even matter. If you just come at it and you say something like this. This is not true, but my wife and I are going through a real crisis right now. We're yelling at each other because we're in an uncomfortable situation because we don't have an Airbnb that feels comfortable. We don't have a house that we're trying to figure out where we want to live. I know you went through this. You were traveling with your wife for a year. Can you help me understand? Did you ever experience this? How did the two of you go through it? If that is the heart of the, the of the conversation. Find someone who's done the thing that you're trying to do, who's been through the problems that you're going through right now, who's come out of it the other side with enough charity and concern and excitement for the for the conquest to come back and help you do the same thing. Then you got gold. Then you've got something. That's it. Bottom line. I remember listening to you eight or nine years ago or so and thinking, 
I wouldn't want to be interviewed by Andrew Warner. I'd be a little bit scared. That, that, that He's a tough interviewer and the kinds of questions that he asks, the way that he jumps in, the, the way he drills down into every single little minutiae, little bit of information, um, I might not have the answer there. Um, but now I'm thinking that you're not quite as, as scary as you used to be in terms of being an interviewer. Do you think I've... No, I, I'm, still, I'm still pretty scary. Here's why I'm scary. Okay. I think that too many people now are getting coached on how to express what they're doing and they're not talking. I want the person to be able to talk from the heart and not give me this uh, um, made up origin story that is just it's just designed to sell. We don't none of us want that. If you're really trying to figure something out, you don't want the blah answer. So, for example, I'll give you an, I'll give you where I'm going to be scary. I'm going to get together with my friend Brad Weimer this uh, Friday uh, Brad runs a credit card processing company. He's a great guy. But what, what's interesting to me is we couldn't meet last week because he was going to run up and down um, the, uh, oh, shoot, what is it? I don't know. I don't know what his latest feat of adventure is. But he's going to, oh, the Grand Canyon. Okay. Now, my wife and I were talking about how can he do that while running a business? And we immediately both had the same thought. We don't want that flippant answer of the company runs without me. I'm not really helpful at all, Right. We want to, we're trying to work as seriously and as caring and lovingly as he as he is, but also have a life that matters and as daring as his. We want to know, how do you do it? How does the company continue to run? How do people feel like you still care? And how do you get stuff done while you will disappear and go run some kind of adventure or whatever? And if he gives me that pat answer, I will be absolutely that mean Andrew that people that people love or hate. And I think it's important. And I don't think that in the moment the person feels threatened. I think in the moment the person feels jarred like, ooh. But if they understand my heart and where I'm going from, if they understand my wife and I are working crazy hours, we also have this ambition to do big things with our lives. And we're trying to figure out how he did it. And if he could dig deep and uncover something meaningful that doesn't sound right, that doesn't rhyme, but actually influenced him he'll have deep influence on us and for the rest of our lives we'll be appreciative to him and i know that for sure because last time i saw brad in person i told him i want to run a marathon on every continent and i was going to start it with the first one that year and he said to me andrew why don't you do it faster why don't you do it within seven days seven marathons and the pushing me to do that made me realize i don't want to do seven days seven marathons on seven continents because i want to experience each continent but i don't want to wait for my life to unfold and so i did it all in 2019 and so when he could give me that meaningful why are we getting there my life has changed, and that's where I want. And every interviewer should do that. We should be mean or tough, not mean like mean-spirited, but like really tough whenever we don't get that deep answer that we're going for. And the only way we could get to it is if we are emotionally enough connected with our lives to know what our problems are, that we can be vulnerable about it and say, I need you now, and I need your help. So I'm going to skip over my question about asking you how you actually get superstar guests to appear in your podcast, because people can go and have a look in the book um, for, for that particular question. But I just ask, I want to ask you one more question before moving to the next section. And that is, I think it's got a little bit harder to get guests to promote your episode or promote the episode they've been on um, yes. once they've been on it than it was maybe five years ago, 10 years ago. Is, is that the case? And maybe what tips do you have to get guests to promote the episodes they've been on? It is incredibly hard to get guests now to promote um, because we've come to a world where no social media app wants to get their users off the app. No social media users want to. So, for example, in the early days of Twitter, I'd finish an interview and people would tweet out that they were on. And if they tweeted out and gave a link, people would follow the link and go over. Today, followers on Twitter are not going to hit that link. They're not going to like that link. They're not going to engage with that link. Twitter does not want to promote that link that takes people off the platform. And so there's disincentive all around for people not to do it. I'm trying to think of what to do to get guests to be more promotional, to help with the promotion. I have a few ideas from doing these interviews that I'm going to bring back to the interviews that I do myself. There are times in interviews where I tap into some kind of deep meaning about my life like I did with that last answer mm. where I felt I went long but I went meaningful if there is a way for me to somehow pull that in a clip that makes sense I would want to share that so that now I've uncovered the thing that I stand for the thing that I rep that I am 
spending my life fighting for, which is it's not about the mic. It's about the depth of you knowing your own problem and holding the other person accountable to find how they solve the problem. I, I think that I said it a little bit better before. If we could somehow pull that out and have that be a statement, I don't care if anyone follows. I don't care if anyone likes, if anyone clicks. I don't care what the algorithms do. That's important enough for me that I would want to get out there. And I, I think that that's, that's something that interviews do. They pull those types of gems out of a person that they didn't know that they felt. Like I didn't realize that that was one of the reasons why I do interviews, that that's, that's the goal, or I couldn't express that as clearly as I did with you. We need to find a way to get that out to, to, for you, since you pulled that out of me, to help me now share that with other people. And I, I don't know how. And it could be a clip that's that. Um, like if you came to me at the end and you said, Andrew, was there anything that felt like it was gold that you'd want my team to clip just for yourself? That's a nice Maybe question. you want to share it, maybe not, but it would be that, right? So that would be the thing. I get a lot of clips pulled for, for the interviews afterwards, but there's stuff that don't really matter. They matter to the to the. To the host or they think they matter to the host, but they don't really matter to me and I'm not going to share. Anyway, so that's one. Here's another one. Uh, so since that's more airy fairy, let's go to something that's more practical. A little bit of guilt, I think really helps. A little bit of follow through absolutely helps. So Neville uh, Medora from Copywriting Course brought me into his house. He sat me down. He recorded. He had a producer who was sitting there actually in real time flipping my camera and his camera and our shared camera so that the video of our interview looked good. He made sure that I sounded good on mic. He made sure that he had a list of questions. He then took a bunch of photos so that he could help promote it. And when I, when he asked me the same question you just asked me in the interview, I said to him, my answer is that you need to ask me to promote because I'm going to feel... I'm going to feel like promoting the interview is too much of a selfish thing. It's like too self-promotional. Why would I want to do it? I don't know that I sounded great. I, you, people get all kinds of insecure after they record something. And so I said to him, you should tell me to promote it. You should pu push me. The freaking guy's got my text message. He will follow up with me to make sure I have the address to come to record. He will follow up with me to make sure that I know that I need to leave the place, my place to get to his place on time at a certain whatever he didn't follow up and say, Andrew, would you mind tweeting this out? Andrew, I think this photo would look good. Andrew, why didn't you? I think he should have. Meanwhile, other people who've done lesser podcasts have asked me, and then I did it. So I do think we need to, if we want somebody to promote, we need to understand that they have some kind of insecurity, that they have some kind of hesitation, and the way to get past it is to ask. The way to get past it is to follow up. And if you just say to me, Andrew, this interview is posted, I'm going to go, great, and I'll move on. Mm. But if you say, Andrew, the interview is posted, and you told me that there are a couple of things that you really liked about it, I think you should point people to that. Or you told me in the interview that you'd share it, I would share it. But that takes a little bit more work today. Yeah, but I love that question there as well. And I've, I've I've tested different things for taking clips. I've even actually asked guests additional quest, uh, questions at the end of podcast before I, or after I actually started recording. And um, it was an additional question that I used on social media as a clip as well. And that, that was quite good. But I think uh, your suggestion is something I'm going to test for future episodes. I'll tell you what, let's segue to part two of our discussion. So it's now time for Andrew's thoughts on the state of digital marketing today. So starting off with secret software. So Andrew, share a lesser known MarTech tool that's bringing you a lot of value at the moment and why that tool is important for you. I wouldn't call it MarTech, but the thing that I'm really interested in right now is something called BitClout. And the reason that I'm interested in it is it's the small cryptocurrency community where some of the top tech people are living right now. And I'm finding that I'm finding that I'm getting a lot of value in understanding how crypto works from this little community because there are places to experiment. And I'm also finding um, I'm finding an audience and I'm also finding uh, money in it. And I'll give you an example of something that I did as an experiment in this little community. I said I was going to create an NFT. Whoever holds the NFT at any point in time before I record a podcast, so I have a second podcast, um, I said in my second podcast, I will, before recording an episode... I will see who's holding that NFT and then I will give them a mention and promotion. And so there was bidding on this NFT and somebody bought it for 10,000 US dollars, wow. which was the equivalent of 60 DSO. That's the crypto uh, coin that they use on that platform. For a brand new podcast, hardly has an audience that's just like a thing where I'm learning on the side, $10,000. And that was that was incredible to see. Now, before recording later today, I'm going to see who holds that coin. It's probably going to be the person who uh, who bought it, uh, the creator fund. I'll mention them, and then 
a week from now, I'll do the same thing before recording. I'll see if they sold it. If they sold it, then I'll see who holds it at that time and I'll give them a mention. And if I continue to do that podcast for the next 20, 30 years, I'll do the exact same thing. It is amazing to be in these smaller communities. We keep thinking, how do I go bigger, bigger, bigger? I think these smaller communities are really fascinating Mm. because we could experiment. Because, especially in this whole crypto space, there's money, there's incentive in a way that we didn't have in the old social media days. And so I highly recommend you go to BitClout and if you have a different uh, crypto or different new community, go go use that. You're a challenging guest because I keep on wanting to follow different um, rabbits that you throw out there and uh, go in a different direction. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say moving on from something that you currently use to something that you're going to use. So that is next on the list. So what's more, one marketing activity or tool that you haven't tried yet, but you want to test soon? Um, I want to do a little bit more teaching. I've been finding that when we teach on Twitter, that we end up with a lot more a lot more followers, a lot more people buying. I need to go back and do more teaching and get and just and do that. Teach more as a way of getting followers, as a way of getting people to be interested. If you're looking for social, um, actually, no, that's it. That's basically it. We're we're not using as many tools as before. What form of teaching keep, keeps people engaged for longest at the moment? The publisher did something really amazing for my book. Ben Patano, the owner of the company, said, we are going to take control of your social media strategy and we are going to help you talk about interviewing. He interviewed me on calls, turned it into a set of tweets, put that out online, and suddenly I've got people who care about my book. I've got people who um, who are who want to buy it. I've got people who are joining the email list that we created for this book all out of nowhere. And so what he's doing is he's saying, how did you do this thing? And he's just taking notes. And then he turns that into a tweet storm. And just plain old text on Twitter has done amazingly well. Not just numbers of likes and follows, but actually people buying the book, actually people going and signing up uh, at stopaskingquestions.co. So let's move on to the this or that round. This is the quick response round. 10 quick questions, just two rules here. Try not to think about the answer too much, and you're only allowed to say the word both on one occasion, so use it wisely. Are you ready? Okay. Yep. TikTok or Twitter? Ooh, TikTok. Facebook or LinkedIn? LinkedIn. YouTube or podcast? Uh, podcast. Traffic or leads? Ooh, uh, Traffic. Paid search or SEO? What was the first one? Paid search or SEO? Ooh, paid search. Ads or influencers? <laughs> ads. Google ads or Facebook ads? Facebook. Email marketing or chat marketing? Chat. Martech stack or all in one platform? Ooh, Martech stack. One to one or scale? One to one. <laughs> there are a few that I could dive into there as well. Um, the first one intrigued me where you said um, TikTok instead of Twitter when we'd just been talking about Twitter. But um, I'd just like to go into chat marketing, actually, because I thought you were going to say email marketing there. I know you, you have involvement in chat marketing, but um, I haven't seen chat marketing actively involved in the promotion of your book. Are, are you using that? I don't think we're using chat marketing uh, nearly enough. I don't think we're, I know we're not using it in promotion of the book. I think that chat marketing is what breaks through for me. And I didn't take any of the lead on marketing, uh, the book. I wrote the book and at the end of it, I was freaking exhausted and I was willing to say yes to any, to anything. I was actually going to take some time off. I wrote the book and I said, all right, great. I'll take some time off and we'll move on. And then, uh, Ben at the at the publisher is the one who just kept pushing me. You need to do this. You need to do that. I'm sure he's going to talk to me in about uh, whenever we're done, a few minutes after that, about what else I should be doing. And it's just growing and growing promotion. But um, I left it in his hands. I think he was right to talk to to talk on Twitter. I think he would have seen more response if he went to chat than email. But I, I also was at a place where I said I I need to take a break. Truthfully, once once the book was done, I was exhausted. I continued in order to promote it. But starting 2022, I'm going to do interviews 
and nothing else, probably no ads in the interviews, probably nothing, just do interviews and then take some time to do nothing, play chess all day, to read, to do something, to find some kind of activity I'm into. I, I want to take a little bit of space. Do you have an audio version of the book planned? Uh, no, we should. And we launched the the text, the paper, digital version first. I guess there is one other thing I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to record the audio book. <laughs> it's not then, fun. Trust me, I've, I've that. done that. And yeah, that, that's a tough one. Especially not for me. I don't like to be scripted at all. Even the people who pay $10,000 to get an ad in every one of my upcoming podcasts, I told them, I, I can't, you can't script me. You just need to give me a name mm. and not even expect me to use a name. I can't be scripted. I've had sponsors pay me over $100,000. And then in the ad, since I do my ads with my guest, the guest will say, I don't use them. I use a competitor. I'll go, why do you use a competitor? Why do you prefer the competitor? Great. Boom. It's just the way it is. Now, the advertiser ended up getting a replacement ad, and so it's fine. And I want the audience to know I'm going to be as open and honest as I possibly could. And if my guest doesn't like them, I'm not going to pretend that my sponsor is perfect for everyone. Mm. I'm going to dive into why my guest doesn't like my sponsor and understand the limitation of the sponsor so that you as my audience can make an informed decision and not say, Andrew, think it's, it's great. It's great for everybody all the time and then be let down later on. So moving on to the $10,000 question. If I were to give you $10,000 and you had to spend it over the next few days in a single thing to grow your business, what would you spend it on and how would you measure success? I would put together parties with people who matter or dinners or scotch. I, I find scotch nights and wine nights to be better. They're better for conversation and better economically. So you know what? It would be like that. Just nothing but the people who matter in the world that I care to be in and just do dinners with them. They will give you ideas like you wouldn't believe. I was I happened to be at a, at Neville Medora's house last night. Sam Parr, who owns The Hustle, was there. And we were talking about moving here and how real estate taxes are high. And he said, you know, you could contest it. And I said, yeah, but it's probably not going to, you can't contest taxes and get much. He goes, oh, I did. And then he told me about a guy who lived down the block who he signed up with to contest his taxes. And he gave me the amount of money that he saved on his uh, real estate taxes here in Austin because of that. When you get together with really smart people who know about the thing you're trying to do, they will find money for you. They will find opportunity for you. Way, I would much rather do that. And I would do it not just one. I would do a series of scotch nights, a series of wine nights, and something like that. Because we went and we were watching um, the Dave Chappelle show on Netflix. And so we got a little bit of chatting before. Then we watched Dave Chappelle. I would... I think that the it has to be all about conversation. I wouldn't even do dinner. People sit down for dinner. They talk to the person next to them. They don't talk to everyone else. It has to be something where you get to talk to everyone else at the table. And so scotch, wine, something like that, absolutely 100%. I'm going long on the answers, but that's the answer. How many is the ideal number of people to have at one of these nights? Oh, good question. Ideally, seven. I don't think you want to get much bigger than that, but it depends on your space. If you could get seven people around a table absolutely fine. I would also do a collection of different whatevers that you're doing. So even if you're not into alcohol, I would then say we're going to do a non-alcohol tasting party, right? Justin Mayer's just created wine that has no alcohol made from real wine. So not grapefruit juice that tastes like wine, but wine without the alcohol. There are people who have beer without alcohol. I interviewed the guy who created Ritual Zero, which is a 0% uh, whiskey and rum and other spirits. If you're not into alcohol, get all of those. Get the wine, get the fake whiskey, get the fake beer, and you're going to do a taste test of all of them. If you are into it, get the wine and get like three or four. It has to be three or four with a little bit of snack in between. So we do a tasting. We talk about it. Then we have a conversation. Then we say, okay, let's have the next bottle. And we talk about what that is. And then we have a conversation. It has to be about conversation. Okay. And one other follow-up question. Ideally, in those seven people, how many people would have been there before and how many people should be new people that haven't been there before? It doesn't matter. It does, if you're a good conversationalist, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. You should find something that they have in common, something that makes them care about each other, but that's it. And so when my kids were, when my first kid was born, I got fathers together who were from all specters of life. Is that the word? They're from all different parts of life. The thing that they had in common was they were all about to have a baby. And so that created a, a connection. If you're uh, looking to market something, if you could get all these marketers together, then um, then that's enough. 
But here's the thing. If you don't have connection to these people, right? Like maybe you're not like me, you know, you haven't known Sam Parr for about a decade and Neville Medora for 15 years or whatever it is. How do you get these people? Neville's a great copywriter, great marketer. How do you, how do you get these people? You find two of them that can get together and then everyone else is going to come for them. Or you find one of them and you say, can I organize an event for you where I bring together these people who matter, who Obviously, you don't say people who matter, but I, I want to bring these marketers together. So for you, can I put this together? You find it, you do the legwork, they will absolutely say yes to doing it. And I know because I've had people where I, I've said to them, you could do it. Justin Mayers, for example, he's the guy who created Kettle and uh, Fire, this bone broth company, do incredibly well. When he was younger and just getting started, he wanted to meet people in tech he organized a dinner party at my house. He invited people over, Ramit Sethi, the author. Uh, he invited Tucker Max. He invited Ryan Holiday over to my house. We did a dinner at my house. He got to know all of them. And, you know, using one person, you could connect uh, everyone else together. That's the answer. So to finish off, Magical Marketer. Who's an up-and-coming marketer that you'd like to give a shout-out to? What can we learn from them and where can we find them? All right, it's uh, these two brothers who use the same name on social media called Krasenstein. And the reason that I think that they're interesting is because the Krasenstein brothers are um, doing marketing in the crypto space. And what they're doing is nothing that can't be duplicated by people who have no interest or no understanding of, of crypto. So they have decided that they were going to get into BitClout as a platform. And so they're in the chat room for BitCloud. They're in the Discord rooms. They're they're doing a YouTube video every day. I think the YouTube video is just blah. It's okay. They're just they have a bad mic. They will interview somebody with their bad mic in an echoey room, and then they'll put it up on YouTube. They'll have a few hundred people watching them, not even a thousand each one of these episodes. But they are super into this world, and as a result, their coin on BitCloud keeps going up in value. The money that they're pulling out of it keeps going up. The connections that they're making keeps going up, and their ability now to create a product from it is, is phenomenal. They just created an NFT marketplace where you can go and buy and sell NFTs. That's the answer. To not care about broad audience, but to go super like deep in this one world, and I think you're going to see some big things from them. This was episode 266 of Digital Marketing Radio, where Andrew Warner, author of Stop Asking Questions, shared so many tips. Um, let's pick up three. What's a win for you? Um, that's a good question to ask before you interview someone. <laughs> um, that helps to manage self-promotion and um, dig out exactly what's important for your guest. Pre-interviews as well. Um, really worthwhile considering that. You could perhaps do it virtually, ideally in person. Dig out the best question, the most likely content that they want to talk about. Make sure you don't miss out anything at all. And then thirdly, have a personal gem to share um, as part of the content in terms of guests and actually asking them that question afterwards. You know, what was the biggest gem? What was the most important thing that you shared afterwards? And perhaps use that as a clip on social media. Your secret software, Andrew, was bitclout.com. Your next on the list uh, was teaching. And your magical marketer will make sure there are links to them as well the show notes at digitalmarketingradio.com. Andrew, what's the best social platform for someone to follow you and say hi? Come see me on Twitter at Andrew Warner. Absolutely superb stuff. Well, I've been your host, David Bain. You can also find me producing podcasts and YouTube shows for B2B brands over at castingcred.com. Until we meet again, stay hungry, stay foolish, and stay subscribed. Aloha. Digitalmarketingradio.com DigitalMarketingRadio.com DigitalMarketingRadio DigitalMarketingRadio DigitalMarketingRadio.com